You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Good to see you this morning. Really good to see you. Hey, we're going to jump into the book of Micah. Who's enjoying this series, by the way? This is like the, my favourite series ever. Probably equal with the John series we did a few years ago. But I just, I'm, I'm loving the challenge of picking up a whole book of the Bible and trying to get through it each week uh, and getting some, kind of that bird's eye picture. I'm, I'm more of a big, big picture kind of guy than a details guy. So just, just being able to cover a whole book is, I don't know, it's kind of in my wheelhouse. Hey, let me just remind you what I said last week. We, as of last week, have switched the, the uh, version of the Bible that we use for preaching. Um, this doesn't mean you have to go out and buy one of these Bibles. Uh, really, I think having a few different versions around is good. Um, all of them are pretty much the same. We chose uh, to buy a whole bunch of CSB Bibles, Christian Standard Bibles. You don't have them in the pews because they only had six of them to give us, so we're waiting on the other 90 to come, hopefully this week. But, um, but we re- this is a new translation as of 2017. It's actually a modified version of the Holman uh, Standard Christian Bible called the CSB, Christian Standard Bible. You can get a pretty good app on your phone for free. Make sure you get the study Bible version of it. It should be a free one there. Um, and that'll help you dive deep into the Bible. This is a... I'm really pleased with the pew. I mean, I, I know that I'm the only nerd in this whole church that cares about this, but this is, this is a solid Bible. Um, I just showed it to Jimmy, and he said, that's a sexy Bible. So um, that's... Um, Sexiness at the pulpit is something we value in this church, obviously, and so disparaging laughter, not what I was hoping for. Um, but hopefully, when you come in next week, we'll have these uh, for you in each of the chairs. We'll take all of the ESV and NIV that we have, and we'll just put them aside and make them available for people to take uh, if they don't own a Bible. So... That's cool. That's good news. I really like the translation. It's a really good um, meeting between a literal translation from the original languages and readability. So tune in this morning because I think, um, I think particularly as I read through Micah, I was really impressed with the, the translation in the CSB. So grab it on your phone if you like. Um, buy one otherwise, it would be a good investment. All right, we're going to jump into Micah. And as I was... Um, thinking about Micah and thinking about the structure of Micah, which we'll get into in just a little bit, I was reminded that some of the most important times in my life have been the times when I've been confronted, confronted with reality, confronted with reality even if, it's, um, even if it comes in the form of warning or rebuke, that actually, when I think about it, the, the times in my life where I've just been simply encouraged to keep going the way that I'm going, those times haven't been nearly as formative as the times where I've been rebuked or warned. And a, a very clear example came to mind. I must have been 20 or 21, and the pastor, one of the pastors of the church I was going to, sat me down, and he loved me enough to look me in the eye and say, I love you, but if you continue on this path that you're going on, you will ruin your life. And he was almost in tears. He, was, he really felt what he was saying to me. This wasn't just a, a power play. He was, re, he was really concerned with what he was seeing in my life. And, uh, and it hit me like a sledgehammer. He said, if you, 
Not if you make a bunch of bad decisions from now for the next few years, but if you continue doing what you're already doing, you will wreck your life. And then he said, the reason I care so much about this is because I believe that God wants something so much better for you. And he actually took a moment, and he, he, I could see he was sort of weighing up whether he would say this, but he ended up saying, there are some people in our church who believe that they've been given words of knowledge about you and about what God might want to do through you in the future. And that just hit me even more. It was like, it was warning and encouragement. And that combination is very powerful. Parents, you can use this combination to great effect with your children. Youth leaders, you can use this to great effect with your, the kids in your tribes. Like, like really, anyway, I mean, it's not just from, from higher up the hierarchy to lower. You can influence people above you, around you, by using this form of teaching, which is warning paired with promise or rebuke paired with encouragement. That's exactly what Micah does really right throughout his book. And there's three main sections in Micah. Warning, promise. Warning, promise. Warning, promise. And we're just going to take a look at those, and that'll take us all the way through each and every chapter of the book this morning. But just to kind of give us a little bit of context, let's read the first couple of verses. That's where we generally get introduced to the man who wrote the book. So here we have... Verse 1 to 2, the word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Morishite, what he saw regarding Samaria and Jerusalem in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, all you peoples, pay attention, earth, and everyone in it. The Lord God will be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple." So here's here's where we get introduced to the man, Micah. He's living about seven centuries BC, so 700 years, thereabouts, before Jesus. And he is uh, called by God, like every prophet of the Old Testament, called by God to speak the words of God to the people of God, and specifically to warn them about the way that they are going, to say to them, if you continue on this path, you will ruin not just your life, but this Nation, this covenant people of Israel. And so that's what he does. But like, as with all of the prophets, once again, his message is broader than just a message for the people of God. Actually, it has application for all the nations of the earth. So that's why he says, not just listen, you Israelites, but he says, listen, all you peoples, pay attention, earth and everyone in it. The Lord will be a witness against you. It's like this courtroom kind of image that he's painted for us. That the whole world, and, and Israel in particular, is in the, the, in the dock, and God, the great heavenly lawyer, is going to bring a case against them for the way that they're living. And this case is going to take the form of these warnings and encouragements. Warnings and encouragements. So let's jump in, right? First set of warnings starting in verse 3 of chapter 1. Micah says, Look, the Lord is leaving his place and coming down to trample the heights of the earth. The mountains will melt beneath him and the valleys will split apart like wax near a fire, like water cascading down a mountainside. It's this graphic image of God coming in judgment. The people of Israel have experienced God coming to the mountain 
in the past where he came to meet with Moses and make covenant with the people, where he came to sort of marry the people of Israel. This is not going to be like that time. This is the Lord coming in fierce anger. His his wrath has been riled up against them. And why? Why is he coming in this judgment? Verse 5, all of this will happen because of Jacob's rebellion. And the sins of the house of Israel. Remember, Jacob and Israel are interchangeable. The sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Isn't it Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Isn't it Jerusalem? These these warnings of God's imminent judgment are coming against the people of God because of their sin, because of their rebellion, because of the way that they've been living. What, what specifically is he talking about? It's one thing to say sin, that's, that's too general. We need some specifics. What are we doing that has so displeased the Lord? Chapter 2, verse 1 to 2, he says, Woe to those who dream up wickedness. And prepare evil plans on their beds. At morning light they accomplish it because the power is in their hands. They covet fields and seize them. They also take houses. They deprive a man of his home, a person of his inheritance. The thing that has angered God so much is the fact that these people are participating in the oppression of the poor. That's the main thing that Micah is concerned with. That's the main thing that has roused God's wrath. The rich are taking advantage of the poor. The powerful are oppressing the weak. They are taking houses and lands from people who can't do anything to defend themselves, which is a direct contravention of the Old Testament law. God had put together the Old Testament law to protect people who were vulnerable. This was, this was a, a massive departure from the survival of the fittest way that most of the world operated at this time, right? Might is right at this time in history. Some would say in some areas of the world, same is true today. But it was, if you're powerful, you can take what you like, whether that's lands, animals, women, right? Do what you like. If you're powerful, you can do it. And God, because he is God, because of his nature, which is love, instituted and and formulated the Old Testament law to make Israel different from every other people, to make them different from what they were by nature, which was survival of the fittest. Might is right. The powerful take advantage of the weak. And so this is why he's so incensed. He's like, I I called you to something better than this, something more beautiful than this, and yet you have regressed to behave like animals. The mighty take advantage of the meek, the powerful oppress the poor. And all of this has made God very angry. And Micah himself feels this deeply. It's like God's own heart has been given to Micah. God's sense of justice has been given to Micah. He feels it deeply. Listen to verse 6 of chapter 2. Uh, sorry, not of chapter 2. Oh, where am I? I'm lost. Here we go, verse 8 of chapter 1. He says, Because of this, 
I will lament and wail. I will walk barefoot and naked. I will howl like the jackals and mourn like the ostriches. He says, I'm going around barefoot. I'm going around naked. I'm going around wailing and crying because of what is going on in the people of Israel. His heart mirrors God's heart in his zeal for justice, in his zeal for mercy. This is as far removed from like hashtag social justice as you can get. Do you know what I mean by that? Like it's so easy to participate in hashtag social justice, right? Yeah, I'll I'll put a post up on social media about how I really care about, I don't know, kids in Nauru or sex slaves or whatever. It's very easy to do that and then to go on with life just as it was beforehand, to not actually feel anything. It's a kind of virtue signaling which, which kind of serves our own purposes more than anyone else's. It's very easy to do that and to think that we've achieved something when we haven't. This is so far removed from that. He is feeling it like in his bones. And what it does is spurs him to action. He feels it in his bones and it spurs him to action, not posting something on Instagram, but action, costly action, dangerous action. Check out uh, verse 8 of chapter 3. Let's skip back a couple there, guys. This is what he says. As for me, however, in distinction to these people, my people, I am filled with power by the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and courage to proclaim to Jacob his rebellion and to Israel his sin. He's seen it and it's motivated him. It's called him. He has a sense of conviction from God that he cannot ignore. That's the difference between hashtag social justice and prophetic social justice. It's to be like the prophet, to be roused to experience it for ourselves, just as God experiences it himself, and then to act in accordance with that arousal. So he steps out, he speaks out, and this is how Israel responds. Verse 6 of chapter 2. Quit your preaching. Sound familiar? Quit your preaching, they preach. Ironic humor there. Quit your preaching, they preach. They should not preach these things. Shame will not overtake us. Their response to his prophetic call is just to stick their hands in their ears. No, 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 no. Not listening. Quit your preaching. Shame's not going to overtake us. We're not doing anything wrong. The most common response to a prophetic call is one of pride and hard-heartedness. Let's not be too quick to look down on these guys without first checking how we respond to the prophetic call. Quit your preaching, they preach. They, or Micah, should not preach these things. Shame will not overtake us. We're fine. We're fine just as we are. How dare you judge us? 
Friends, if you want to take up the call that I believe every Christian has on their life, the call to be a prophetic voice to the people around you, if you want to take up the call to to call people away from sin and towards holiness and faithfulness and justice and mercy, if you want to take that up, if you want to be obedient, then this is what you're going to come up against, whether it's in the world or perhaps even more so with Christians. You can't judge me. Only God can judge me. That's the kind of response you're likely to get. Now, you can have a negative response to your prophetic voice purely because you're being a, a uh, what's a non-sweary way of saying? No, I can't get one. An Americanism, a jerk, right? You can, you can get a negative response just because you're doing a bad job of being a prophet, right? Because you're acerbic, because you're, because you're, you're um, too rough in the way that you're communicating. Some people can be that kind of prophetic voice and then act like a martyr when people reject them. It's not their problem, that's your problem. And in fact, that kind of preaching, that sort of self-righteous preaching, is more like the hashtag social justice than anything else. Than the prophetic voice. It's, what I mean is it's self-serving. It makes you feel good. It makes you feel like a big man, that you stood on the, the box and, 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 and denounced everyone around you. That's not the prophetic voice. Why? Because that's not how God speaks. Yes, God is direct, but all of his directness, all of his preaching comes from a heart of love. It comes from a place where he wants to see everyone repent, not be turned away for life, but come to repentance. The truth is, however, that when we preach, that is when we speak God's words, we will sometimes find people softening and repenting, and sometimes we'll find people hardening and turning away. The the Puritans had the saying that the the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And it's not up to you who does what. It's up to you to speak, to be that prophetic voice. And it's more than voice. It's, it's, It's mouth and hands, obviously. But this is the response that you can expect. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised when people stick their hands in their ears and say, quit your preaching. And here I'm thinking not particularly about people out there. I'm talking about people in here. Jesus' own experience of being a prophetic voice to his community was to be rejected. Most of the prophets were killed by God's people. Jesus said, a prophet is never welcome in his hometown. Christians have been very, very good, all right? We, 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 we can say the things that Christians have failed at over the years. Here's what, something we've been really good at, and I'm speaking ironically, but something we've been really good at is, is building preachers and building churches that will never challenge us, that will never call us to repentance, that will never point out our sin or shine the light on our darkness. We've been very good at that. Because that's a church you want to go to. It's more of a community club kind of atmosphere, but it's comfortable. 
Christians have been really good at it, and none of it comes as any surprise to us. Paul said to Timothy in, in, in his second letter in chapter 4, he says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead. So on the basis of the, the fact that justice is real, and the day of the Lord is coming, he says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, correct, and encourage. That's exactly what Micah is doing, right? Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. Can you see God's heart in that? It's direct. It's just. There's rebuke. There's correction. But there's encouragement. There's great patience because it comes from a heart of love. It comes from wanting a place of wanting the very best for the people that we're speaking to. However, the time will come when people not, will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves. Right? They'll build churches and preachers because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. Christianity without a prophetic voice, Christianity without sin and judgment is a myth. You can still call it Christianity. You can say that your church is a church. You can call the guy a pastor, but it's myth. It's mythology. It's not Christianity. Paul warned Timothy about it in the first century. It's happening today, and it was happening here in Micah's time as well. He continues the hilarity in, in verse 11-12. Sorry, in verse 11 of chapter 2. He says, If a man comes and utters empty lies, for example, I will preach to you about wine and beer. He would be just the preacher for this people. That's the kind of preacher they want there in Jerusalem. That's the kind of of preacher they want in the northern kingdom of Israel. They want a preacher who will come and say, the topic of the sermon this morning is wine and beer. Woo! Because who's going to vote against that? Rather hear a sermon about wine and beer than about sin and judgment. I've always said it's easy to, to, to grow a big church. There's all this, oh, how are we going to grow the church? Easy. Just have free beer and pizza every Sunday. And giveaways. And like, you know, whatever. Free car. Like, do, what, do whatever. Give people what they want and you will gather a massive megachurch. It's easy. It just won't be Christian. It'll be a myth. That's the place that these people find them in, desiring to hear about wine and beer and shutting their ears, shutting their ears to the prophetic voice of the prophet. And even in the midst of this level of darkness, in this level of rebellion, God still speaks words of promise, words of encouragement. Verse 12 and 13, chapter 2. He says, I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob. I will collect the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep 
in a pen like a flock in the middle of its pasture. It will be noisy with people. One who breaks open the way will advance before them. They will break out, pass through the city gate and leave by it. Their king will pass through before them. The Lord as their leader. He gives them this this prophetic picture of a Messiah king. A Messiah king who is going to come and lead them into safe pasture. To lead them out of their darkness and into the light. We're going to hear more about this Messiah king in a little bit. But this is the great hope that, that, that Micah has. That one day God might just come himself to lead the people. He's doing his best but he's just a man. He wants God himself to come and deliver this faithful remnant, this, the, the true believers of the people of Israel. But before that happens, he's going to need to give them more warnings. All right, let's jump back into the warnings. Verse 3 of chapter 3. He gets all poetic. You eat the flesh of my people after you strip their skin from them. And break their bones. You chop them up like flesh for the cooking pot, like meat in a cauldron. He says, when you rich people oppress the poor, it's as if you're cannibalizing them. You may as well be eating them. Because you're taking everything from them and leaving them with nothing. This time of history, if someone takes everything you have and leaves you with nothing, you're as good as dead. So he says, it's like you're eating them. It's like you're cannibalizing them. He's using this graphic language to try and wake them up to see, this is what you're doing. Can't you see what you're doing? Can't you see how out of step with God's own heart this is? And then he speaks specifically to the leaders, to the spiritual leaders to the civic leaders of the people of Israel, verse 5 of chapter 3. This is what the Lord says concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who proclaim peace when they have food to sink their teeth into, but declare war against the one who puts nothing in their mouths. He says, you're, you're declaring war on people who've got nothing. They've got nothing. You've taken everything from them, and now you're declaring war on them. And again... Rather than repentance, there is just maddening, like blind entitlement. Verse 9. Listen to this, leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert everything that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with injustice. Her leaders issue rulings for a bribe. Her priests teach for payment. Right? They're, 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 they're pimping the gospel. And her prophets practice divination for silver. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Isn't the Lord among us? No disaster will overtake us. See, just the, the flagrant sense of entitlement that these people have. Building Zion on bloodshed, pimping the gospel for money, taking lands from the poor 
and all the while just leaning on the Lord and saying, praise God. Right? Attributing to God what is evil, which Jesus identifies as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Attributing to God what is evil. Isn't the Lord among us? Look at us. We're, doing, we're fat. And the city is prosperous. Rich people are doing really well. I'm glad I'm a priest. I'm making good money. Surely the Lord is among us. No disaster will overtake us. God wouldn't do anything to us. I read that this past week, and I just got this this sledgehammer into my heart. Like, how often do I take up that kind of posture? Taking advantage of God's grace. Right? Like, right in the midst of sin. Like, knowing, knowingly participating in something that God hates while arguing for what I'm doing by saying, praise God, Jesus died for me, so it's going to be okay. Surely the Lord is among us. Jesus has died for us. Disaster won't overtake us. If you have any sense of resonance with the scenario that I just described, then we have much to repent for. Taking advantage of God's grace. And yet, again, like... Counterintuitive to everything that seems just and right and fair, God extends mercy, promises redemption. Verse 1 to 5, I'm going to read a bit of the text here, so stay with me as I read. Just listen to this. He says, right, right after they've said this, he says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains, and will be raised above the hills. People will stream to it, and many nations will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways, so we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among many peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation and they will never again train for war. But each person will sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten them for the mouth of the Lord of armies has spoken. Though all the peoples each walk in the name of their gods, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. He gives them this vision of a restored creation where none of this 
none of this evil is taking place anymore, where there will be perfect justice, no more war, right? That, that verse, which is identical to the one in Isaiah chapter 2, these guys, Micah and Isaiah were contemporaries, that, that verse about turning spears into, uh, spears into pruning knives, right? That, that will probably be read at services today for Remembrance Day, certainly in England, if not in Australia. That's a, that's a verse of hope for people who are remembering those who have fought and died in war, right? A verse of hope where there will not be any more war, no more conflict, no more injustice. And he says, all of this is coming. And it's not just for you, Israel, it's for people of all nations. This great redemption and restoration of all people is available to you. The question is, if you're sitting in the middle of this situation, or maybe just in the middle of your situation, and you're dealing with this this sense of injustice, if you're tuned in to what's going on around the world, in war-torn nations, if you're tuned in to what's going on in, in in, in in the human trafficking industry, if you're tuned in, right, if you watch the news ever, then you've got to ask, how is this going to come about? How is this, this world of peace, this world of justice, how is this going to come about? <laughs> Micah tells us. He tells us 700 years before it happens. This is what he says, chapter 2 of verse 5. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. So, let's just get this straight. There's going to be someone, someone ancient, someone from ancient times is going to come from Bethlehem to rule Israel. Is that right, Micah? Yep. And this is how it's going to happen. Verse 4. He will stand and shepherd them, God's people, in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. So, that, so, so all of this is going to come about through one man, an ancient man, a man from ancient times who's going to come from Bethlehem and lead his people in the strength of the Lord and his fame, his glory is going to extend to the ends of the earth, even to Caroline Springs. He's going to protect them for he will be their peace. And 700 years later, all of this comes to pass. Friends, this is our Jesus. This is our Jesus. He is our shepherd king. He's come to lead his people from every nation, to gather them together in this restored kingdom where there will be no war, where there will be perfect justice, 
And all of this is going to happen at his doing. This is your shepherd, King Jesus. I met with a woman recently, not from this church. I met with her to talk, about, talk to her about some issues she was having, and she was experiencing great anxiety and fear. Great anxiety and fear. It was almost crippling. And as a Christian, I asked her, where is Jesus in this? She's painted a picture of her life. Terrible, crippling, suffocating. I said, where is Jesus in this? And she answered correctly. She said, Jesus has died for my sin. Correct, but incomplete. Jesus is not just the lamb who is slain. He is the shepherd of his sheep, right? He is the one who secures our peace. The reason that we can have security rather than anxiety is because he is our shepherd. He is our shepherd king. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. Does that mean we'll never have hard times? Obviously not. Does it mean that nothing can threaten our status as sheep of his pasture? Yes. That's the truth. Nothing can threaten the most important thing in the world. That is your status, your identity as his precious little lamb. So when it comes to the most important thing in the universe, we can be safe and secure in the knowledge that we have this shepherd king, that he is our peace. Now, if I'm being honest, that didn't kind of elicit the kind of response I was looking for. Maybe the last little bit will. We'll we'll give it a shot, all right? Listen, last set of warnings. Maybe you were just feeling it inside. I get it, all right? Chapter 6, verse 1 to 2. More warnings, guys. Now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your complaint. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains, and enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people, and he will argue it against Israel. Their response now is, okay, 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 we've got to chapter 6. We're hearing, we've done something wrong here. What what, what are we going to do? What check can we write to make it all right? How how can we make recompense? What do you want us to do? What do you want from us? What do you want from me, God? I know that I've gone wrong. What do you want? What should I bring, verse 6, what should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? What do you want from me? What's it going to take to make this go away? 
I wonder if you've ever felt like that. Maybe you're here this morning as a little part payment for the stuff that went down this past week. What do you want from me? What do I want from you, God says? It's simple. Verse 8. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. That's what he wants. You can keep your rams. You can keep your oil. You can keep your firstborn sons. God doesn't need your sacrifices. The sacrifice that God wants is a living sacrifice. It's your life. We don't exist to make all of life all about the stuff we can do for God. Making all of life all about preaching and running soup kitchens and gardening, right? We're not, we're not, it's making all of life all about Jesus. That's what God requires from us, nothing less. Living sacrifices, each one of us. So this is, listen, this is great. If you want to take Micah 6 verse 8 and do as many people have done and make that a personal mission statement for yourself, that's great. It's a great mission statement to have. It's not the whole picture, but it's a really good mission statement for you to walk, work towards. But, but don't miss it. This is not given as kind of tacit advice or, or as a kind of a, a throwaway line to these people. This is a rebuke. He says, this is what God calls you to do, and you're not. You're very much not. It's a warning. You've been told what to do, and you're not doing it. Verse 13 to 14, as a result, because you're not, I've begun to strike you severely, bringing desolation because of your sins. You will eat, but not be satisfied, for there will be hunger within you. What you acquire, you cannot save, and what you save, I will give to the sword. This is a prophetic judgment which is going to come about. The Assyrians are going to come and take all this stuff that they've stolen from poor people. The Assyrians are going to take it from them. And then the Babylonians are going to come and take it from them. And it's all going to be part of God's severe mercy. This is his disciplining of his children. He's, he loves them too much to just let them keep going the way they are. And so he's going to strike them. He's going to spank them. He's going to hit them on the bottom really hard and it's going to hurt a lot and it's going to be designed to bring them back to himself, back to restoration. Verse 8 and 9, do not rejoice over me, my enemy. This is Israel speaking. Though I have fallen, I will stand up. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I must endure the Lord's rage until he champions my cause and establishes justice for me, he will bring me into the light. I will see his salvation. Micah says, yes, you will have to endure this discipline. 
but God will be faithful in bringing you back into the light of his salvation. The question is, he speaks very assuredly. That's why I'm using the words promise rather than just encouragement or whatever. It's, it's promise. How can he be so sure that God is going to be merciful to these people who, who have no, nothing deserving? It's because he knows that God's redemption, God's restoration, God's salvation is ultimately based on, not on their obedience, but on his faithfulness. If he, if he was putting all his hope on these guys getting it together, I mean, there is no hope there. They've proven from the beginning they've got no staying power when it comes to living godly lives. They just keep screwing it up over and over again. And so do you, and so do I. So this is why Micah is so confident. He says this is based on God's character, God's faithfulness, not on our obedience. This is exactly why we can be confident that we will be there on that day when God makes all things right. That we will be members of that kingdom fully restored. This is the hope, right? If you want to base your hope on anything, don't base it on turning your life around. God willing, that will follow. But what leads and what provides strength and what provides confidence and hope for the future are these two things, God's character and God's promises. Notice that you're not mentioned in that little list. God's character and God's promises. So he says, and we're going to finish here, so stay with me, okay? He says, verse 18 to 19, beautiful way to finish the book. Who is a God like you? Forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. He, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. We will experience redemption because of who God is not just what he does, but his very nature is mercy and compassion and forgiveness. He bases on his character and on his promises. Verse 20, you will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our fathers from days long ago. God has made covenant with his people. He's made a promise with his people and God never breaks his promises. If he makes a promise, it's as good as done. So on the basis of his character, he is love. He is mercy. He is compassion. And on the basis of his promises made to Abraham centuries ago, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, every promise has its yes in the Lord Jesus. On those two bases, we can have sure and certain hope of redemption and restoration. That's why we call the gospel good news. Let's pray together.